You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello and welcome back to Theology for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Kenny Ortiz, coming at you from the beautiful city of Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes out to listen to today's episode of the podcast. This is episode 144, and I'm going to be answering the question, how was the Bible compiled, or how did we get the Bible, and who decided you know, what, what belongs in the Bible and what doesn't? Right? Like, who, who are the group of people that determine that this particular group of writings over here belong in the Bible because they're from God, but these particular writings over here are apparently not from God, therefore they don't belong in the Bible. Who made those decisions, and and, and how do I know that the Bible uh, is reliable in the in the sense that the books that are there and the writings that are in the Bible should actually be there? Great, great question. Great topic. Very important topic. Uh, so I'm excited to dive into uh, to the content for this episode. I think that there's no doubt that. Uh, how we answer these questions and how we tackle and understand this issue or this topic will have dramatic influence over all matters of faith and how we de- or and how we determine what we believe. And so, again, really, really important. Excited to uh, dive into the content for this episode. Before we do that, quick reminder to everyone about the importance of being subscribed to the podcast. Now, I know many of you listening to, listening to this are already subscribed. Big thank you to you. Uh, but if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed, I want to encourage you to do so. It's really important. Uh, whenever you're subscribed, it guarantees you never miss an episode because as soon as an episode goes live, it gets delivered directly to your device. So uh, make sure you're subscribed. The easiest way to do that is to head over to our website, theologyfortherestofus.com. Click on one of the buttons uh, that you know that apply to you, whether you're an Apple user, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, whatever. Click on one of those buttons. It'll take you over to the place or you can subscribe. The other thing I want to mention to you before we dive into the content is that I have another podcast. For those of you who've been listening a while, you are familiar with this, uh, but I want to encourage anyone who's new to the podcast is not familiar to check out my other podcast, Student Ministry Podcast, which is designed for any any youth worker or youth minister or anyone looking to invest in the lives of middle school, high school, college students. If that's you or someone you know, I want you to encourage I want to encourage you to check out the podcast. Uh, or maybe refer that to some of your friends. The easiest way to check that out is over at our website. That's studentministrypodcast.com. All right, now that we got the business taken care of, let's dive into this all-important content. Uh, In this particular episode, I'm going to focus more on how the Bible was actually compiled, like the book that we call the Bible today. How did those writings end up in there, or how, you know, how was it produced or put together? That's a very important question. In future episodes, I'm going to talk about um, whether or not the Bible has been changed over the course of time, has it been you know rewritten, edited, corrupted, things like that, uh, and then in another episode I'll, I'll focus on inerrancy and inspiration. How do we know that these writings were actually written by God, and how were they given to us from God, but through man, and, and how can we trust the inerrancy, the authority of the Scripture? So I'm going to. tackle that in future episodes, Uh, but in this particular episode, we're going to focus really specifically on how it was actually compiled, and I'm going to give you a super simple version. Like I'm going to oversimplify this in a way that is probably uh, going to get me in trouble with some of you who are maybe a little more astute and and scholarly, Um, but because this topic can be so convoluted in some ways, 
and, and because there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of variables, I want to make it super simple. So I'm, I'm going to give you a super simple version of events that what happened after Jesus resurrected from the dead and that kind of help you understand how the Bible was compiled. I'll give you some points of history that are important to know. And then at the end, I'm going to give you a bunch of books that you can check out. So if you really want to do some additional research and some additional study, I want to encourage you to, to check that out. Um, I have dialogued a little bit about the reliability of the scriptures in previous episodes, uh, namely the episode I want to bring your attention. In episode 132, I interviewed a guy who is a uh, one of the professors and staff members at Bethany Global University in Minneapolis. Uh, he's actually a personal friend of mine, uh, Kenneth Ferreira. I, I actually interviewed him and we talked, uh, we dialogued about the reliability of the scriptures and, and kind of an overall 10,000 foot view. And so I would encourage you to go back and check that out. But when I answer the question, how was the Bible compiled? Let me give you the simplest version of events that I can come up with. And I'm going to do this kind of in a silly animated way to, to be helpful. Let's, let's pretend that Jesus is living today. He lived in the, or let's say he lived in the 20th century. All right. And let's say, let's say you live in Orlando, Florida. Okay. You live in my city and we're hanging out in Orlando, Florida. And let's say someone that you know that you're close to gives you a call and says, dude, there's a guy right now, this, this guy named Pedro is down at Starbucks and in downtown Orlando, and he's talking about uh, this this carpenter from Miami who was healing the sick and supposedly raised from the dead. We got to go check this out. And you're like, "What? What are you talking about?" And and then and then you look at me and say, "Hey, I just got this weird phone call. You want to go check this out?" And I say, "Yeah, sure." So you and I we hop in our car, we drive down to Starbucks. And outside of Starbucks, we see this guy who's standing on a chair preaching, and there's this kind of crowd that's gathered around them. And he's basically talking about the fact that the last three years of his life, he's been hanging out with this carpenter, right, in down in Miami, and his name is Jesus. Uh, I'm Puerto Rican, so we'll call him Jesus, right? And so, um, and so we see this, this. He's been, and this guy Pedro is up on a chair. He's saying, "Listen, guys," or on a table, and he's saying, "Guys, for the last three years, I've been hanging out with this guy, and he taught me all these things. He actually was God who came down to hang out with us, and he rose from the dead." And we're all like, "Dude." Are you flipping crazy? No one's risen from the dead, okay? Stop it. Somebody lock this guy up and, and put him away because he's flipping crazy, okay? Right? Like that's how, That might be the reaction. But he's preaching, and he's preaching this truth with such authority, and it's so compelling that all of us are kind of drawn to it, and we want to know more, but we think he's kind of crazy. And then all of a sudden, in the crowd, that there's this guy that you know who... Uh, let's say was paralyzed in a in a in a car accident, and you know this guy. You're like, listen, it's a friend of mine who has been paralyzed from the waist down for the last several years because he was in a car accident. And Pedro says, bring that bring that that guy to me who's in a in a wheelchair. And Pedro prays for him, and he's healed. And it, and the guy that you know starts dancing around in front of Starbucks in front of everyone. How would you react in that moment? You'd probably be freaked out and in awe and amazed, and you'd want to listen to what Pedro had to say even more, right? And so all of a sudden, Pedro begins to preach, and he says, listen, this is not my doing. I'm not special. It's not my power. This is the power of God, and the reason the power of God is with me right now is because God wants to get your attention, and God wants you to listen to him, and God has sent me here to preach to you the truth. Okay, so Pedro now has to take off because the cops show up and they break it up and they're going to arrest Pedro. He ends up escaping and you leave and you're like, you're in awe. You're like, what just happened? 
he's telling me about this this Jesus Carpenter guy from from Miami, and and. And then you don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden you get a text message from your friend and goes, hey, that guy, Pedro, he's going to be at a secret meeting late tonight in the basement of Edgewater High School. It's a high school here in Orlando. And and so in the, and I just said, base, side note, we don't have basements in Florida because of hurricanes, but let's just go with it. It's a fictional story, so we'll go with it, right? Um, so he, So you get a text message that says, hey, in the basement of Edgewater High School, Tonight, late night, uh, it's going to be the secret meeting that Pedro's going to be at. He's going to talk more about this Jesus Carpenter character. And so you drive over there and you, know, you don't want anyone to know and you sneak into the building late night and there he is, the guy who had prayed for the for the paralyzed man who was healed, the guy who was preaching. And then Pedro tells you about this Jesus, this Jesus character and, and everyone believes in him as God and everyone that day converts to be a follower of this new way of living. The, the new way of living is to follow the way of Jesus and everything he taught. And Pedro then spends several hours teaching us. And then and then for the next two weeks, every night, late night, we meet in, in, you know, in the basement uh, of, of Edgewater High School. And Pedro tells us about the more he learned. And he basically tries to catch us up on the last three years of his life. And he teaches us as much as he can. And then all of a sudden, Pedro's got to be, he's got to go, he's got to skip town because the authorities are finding out about this. They, they break this up. They, they, they catch some of these people who are meeting in the basement. They arrest them. And, and then all of a sudden, Pedro, he skips town because he's trying to, you know, run for his life. And he ends up in another town preaching. And then you and your friends start meeting in secret at someone's house. And you come together and you, you, you try to now to live out together. You try to try to build friendships with one another and encourage one another to live the way that Pedro taught you to live. Right? In, in the ways that Jesus taught him to live. Now, let's say a few weeks go by and you get a rumor, you hear a rumor that Pedro's actually been in Jacksonville and he's preaching there and he's doing the exact same thing that he did in Orlando for you. He's preaching in Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville is, is about two hours away from Orlando. Miami's about four hours south. So Pedro's been moving. He started moving northward. He started in Miami and he drove four hours north to Orlando and now he's two hours further north in Jacksonville. And you hear that and you're excited. And, and then you hear a week later, there's another rumor that he drove, you know, four hours north of there. And now he's in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's preaching there. You're, you're hearing rumors about this. And this, this new way of living, following Jesus the carpenter, is now spreading all over Florida. And then let's say you get a letter. And, and, or let's say, you, you, know, uh, you know, a friend of yours gets a letter and says, hey, it sends you a text message. Hey, meet us at Edgewater tonight. We, we got to talk about this. And, and we get to Edgewater. And there's a letter, and it came from Pedro, and it's authenticated. There's a little uh, seal on it, so you know it did indeed come from Pedro. And you open it up, and it's a letter from Pedro telling, reminding you of the things he taught you and telling you how to live. Can you imagine this? And now imagine you then write a letter back to, and you send it to your buddies in Atlanta, and you say, hey, Pedro, we have some more questions. Can you answer them? And then Pedro writes a second letter and sends it back to Orlando. And now you have a second letter answering the questions. So now you have two letters from Pedro, and you're amazed by that. Now, while Pedro is in Atlanta, he writes a letter to the guys in Jacksonville as well, right? And now all of a sudden, a buddy of yours shows up in Orlando and says, hey, listen, I've just been in Jacksonville. We have a letter from Pedro. Look, it's here. And you go, we have two letters from Pedro. We have, so now you have three letters from Pedro, and you begin to compile them. Now, of course, Pedro's not the only one that's going around Florida and preaching this new way of living, this new truth that we've discovered about this Jesus the Carpenter character who was God incarnate. Like, Can you imagine? There's much, multiple guys, and these letters begin to get circulated all around. And you only know about one or two of them or three of them when you, when you live. And so then you decide that you're going to go, and people have got to, you, 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 you hear that there's no one preaching this truth up in Birmingham, Alabama. 
So you decide with you and your buddies, you're going to pile into your truck, you're going to drive to Birmingham, and you've got three or four of the letters that have been written, have been circulated, and you show up in Birmingham, and you start to preach the truth of Jesus the Carpenter from Miami, and you begin to to give away all these letters and, circ and have them in circulation. And then, while you're in Birmingham, some guy from West Virginia shows up claiming that Pedro's younger cousin was in West Virginia and Pedro's younger cousin wrote a letter and there you have it in Birmingham. So now in Birmingham, you have multiple pieces and you can take these letters and, and compare them, contrast them. You see the overlapping themes and the overlapping truths from people that know that, know that were close to the story. They know what happened. And ultimately, these letters begin to get circulated. And over the course of time, eventually, they all get compiled together. Okay, now, I've just spent the last eight minutes telling you a very silly, very weird, random, modern story. But, but I tell you this because I want you to understand the context of what was happening in the first century. Jesus came to planet Earth. He died. He rose from the dead. And I did previous episodes on the resurrection. If you're interested, go to the website, theologyfortherestofus.com, type resurrection in the search box. Um, I think like seven or eight episodes will pop up on the resurrection. I gave ample evidence for the fact that Jesus did indeed raise from the dead. You can go check that out at the website. Um, and so Jesus comes to planet earth. He dies and atone uh, a death on the cross to atone for our sins. He raises from the dead. And then his disciples, the guys that had hung out with him for three, four years, three and a half years, they begin to go all around the place preaching this truth. And every time they go, they start these churches, these groups of people who decide they're going to live to follow Jesus. And, uh, and, and there are many of these disciples. And as those disciples preached the gospel, they mentored younger leaders that eventually they grow up and they go off and they continue to preach. And, and the message of Jesus spreads all throughout the Roman Empire over the course of the next 50 to 100 years. And these leaders that we call apostles, these, these leaders in the church, the guys that knew Jesus, that spent time with Jesus, begin to write letters and they begin to um, circulate these letters that they're writing. And as they get written, individual pockets of new, these new believers all over the place, and in many cases, they only have access to a few of them. They didn't have access to all of them. And they had access to different ones. But as they, as they moved around and as the gospel continued to spread, the letters that were written and the, the information that was documented by early Christians gets spread around. And over the course of the first 50 to 100 years of Christianity, after Jesus raises from the dead and ascends to heaven, over the course of time, we're able to, we collect all of these, these writings and we're able to compile them. Now, there were a bunch of them that were universally accepted relatively quickly. Within a few years, they were well circulated and everyone knew this one is authentic, written by someone who knows what they're talking about, written by someone who did miracles on behalf of the gospel, who preached authoritatively and, and planted churches, and, and it's someone that we should be listening to. Many of them, most of them, in fact, were very authoritative. And as the apostles died, the second generation of church leaders, you know, between, you know, 70 AD and 125 AD, the kind of the, the next generation of Christianity, many of those guys that became pastors and leaders in the church, as they would preach and teach, they didn't write their own letters. Uh, they would quote and preach and teach from the letters that were given to them or the writings that were given to them by the previous generation of leaders, the ones that had actually witnessed Jesus doing the miracles. And so that that's 
That's ultimately how we knew they were authoritative in that by the second generation of Christians, people were realizing they were reading and going, this is authoritative, this is authentic, we need to listen to this. And, and ultimately, that's how it was compiled. Now, I just gave you a very simple version of how the Bible was compiled. Um, there are whole college courses, by the way, you could take on this particular uh, on how this you know, how this happened, you could study this for months and get all the the nuance. Okay, who found Galatians and when was it first accepted in this other city and when was it sent here? And, I mean, you could do all that studying, and there is ample ample archaeological evidences for those sorts of things. Lots of writings and documentation about that. And at the end of this episode, I'll point you to some resources where you can find that. But I'm skipping over all of that because I'm just, again, I'm trying to give you 10,000 foot basic understanding. All of these writings were being circulated all throughout the known world. And eventually people would read them and they would see the truth in them. They would see that they're authoritative, they're authentic, written by people who knew what they were talking about, who had experienced and been mentored by Jesus. And they began to then compile all of these books um, into one particular book, and it, it eventually it was known as the canon, or what we would call the Bible, right? Um, and, and there were some variances over the course of time. Like I said a moment ago, some books were universally accepted relatively quickly. There were others that were not as accepted as quickly. They were slightly disputed. Typically, there were some disputes amongst the East and the West. Like Christians on the Eastern half of the Roman Empire often had different perspectives in a variety of ways than Christians in the Western part of the Roman Empire and, and Northern Africa. Kind of the Northern African Christians and the Western Roman Christians uh, often kind of had similar views and the, the Eastern had a little slightly different. And, and eventually we would see an, an ultimate divide, uh, the, the, the schism of of the 11th century, which I which I talked quite a bit about in episode 35. In fact, there are three episodes where I talk about the kind of the divide between East and West. If you want, if you're interested, episode 35, I answer the question, why are there so many different denominations in the world today? And I, I dialogue there about kind of what we call the Great Schism. There was a kind of a divide between the Western churches and the and the, and the Eastern churches. Um, episode 48, I talk about whether or not Easter is a pagan holiday or has its roots in paganism. And, and there was a divide amongst the East and the West in the, in the second and third century. In the second and third century, and so you can go check that out. And then episode fifty-six, I talked about Martin Luther and the Reformation, and again, I talked there a little bit about the divide east and west. You can check that out. But there were some books that were more rapidly embraced throughout the eastern part of the, uh, you know, the, the Roman Empire, and, and there were some books and some letters that were more rapidly embraced in, in the western part. And eventually, there were there were there were some books that that. That, you know, that different churches within different segments accepted that others did not. And so there was some element of dispute occasionally. But, but there, there are people who would want to attack the Bible who would lead you to believe that there was this massive dispute and there were so many disagreements. And that's actually just not true. That's being intellectually dishonest. Anyone who says that either just doesn't know what they're talking about or they're flat out lying. And so I feel the need to just call those people out right now if you are someone that is claiming that or or proclaiming that to others with all due respect and as much love as I can have for you in my heart, you are wrong. Please go read a history book. You are not accurate. The Bible uh, was not nearly as heavily disputed as many uh, you know secular revisionists uh, and, and liberals would want liberals would want you to believe as they attack the scripture. Um, in fact, Norm Geisler, who is a very uh, a prolific, prolific author, theologian, apologist, um, has he's written, I think, like 80 or 90 books now. Um, he actually makes the point that there is substantial evidence that just about every verse of the New Testament was quoted by one of the early church fathers 
before 115 AD. So by, by the time we get to 115 AD, pretty much every verse of the New Testament, with the exception of a handful of verses, um, were, were quoted in writings by some of the early church fathers. Meaning, after all the apostles were dead, you know, when we get to, when we get to the, the 70 AD to 100 AD mark, 110 AD mark, there are other pastors and leaders that have, you know, that have been mentored and that kind of become the leadership of the church. And when they're writing letters to their congregations or when they're preaching sermons, they are quoting from the early, the first generation of Christians and the writings that were available during that time. And Norm Geiser makes the point that there is substantial historical evidence that every verse of the New Testament at some point was quoted. Like if you take all the sermons and all the writings that were preached and, and all the writings that were given to us from the second generation and you look at how many times they quoted all the other ones and you compile them, it, all of them are being, with the exception of a handful of verses from uh, I think 3 John and and Philemon. And Norm Geisler makes a joke and says, when was the last time you quoted from 3 John or Philemon, right? <laughs> Not many times. And so, uh, but for the most part, the, the the second generation of the church, they kind of knew which books really belonged. Again, with, with some minor exceptions and some minor disputes in some parts of the world, universally by 115 AD, it was known which books were authoritative. Now, they were never compiled together in one list until much later, um, but they it was kind of generally known uh, overall which books were authoritative which ones could be trusted, which ones should not be trusted, which ones should be preached from and taught from, which ones should not be preached from and not taught from. So at this point, you're in the early part of the second century. Uh, Christianity is exploding all over the Roman Empire and now beyond, uh, even beyond the Roman Empire. You have these writings that are considered authentic and authoritative. They're being used, they're being quoted from, they're being preached from as if they are uh, scripture and they're believed to be from God. Uh, in the middle part of the second century, you have other writings begin to pop up. Some of them bear the names of some of the apostles. So you have the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, and you have these other writings up, you know, appearing, and you have some Christians and some churches embracing those and saying, oh, those are true as well, that's true as well. But typically within one generation, you have some leaders and some apologists rising up and saying, no, 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 those are not accurate. And there is substantial evidence that all of these books that pop up in the second century are not authentic. They're not actually written by people in the first century. They're written by people in the second century, but they write it as if they're writing it from the perspective of the person of the first century to try to gain credence or try to gain credibility. Um, and it ends up dying off. So by the end of the by the end of the second century, as we approach you know, kind of 200 AD, early 200s, that there is a large plethora of writings, um, but most of them have been discredited if they were written in the second century. And you still have, for the most part, a list of, of letters and writings that we accept to be authoritative, again, with some minor disputes on certain books, depending on where you live, whether you're in the eastern part uh, of of the Roman Empire in the eastern part of the world versus the western part of the world that there was some divide and and over time that divide gets gets stronger and fiercer and so therefore the disputes kind of you know end up getting a little bit uh, a little fiercer a little more furious over the course of time. Let's fast forward now to the middle of the the fourth century, um, you know middle of the three hundreds. By this point. Uh, Christianity now becomes legal before uh, before you know the the early part of the fourth century. Christianity was illegal, and so now we are here in the mid three hundreds, in the middle of the fourth century. Christianity has been legalized mostly because uh, the emperor Constantine became a believer. He, he converted to Christianity and ends up bringing wholesale changes uh, to how the Roman Empire viewed uh, viewed Christianity. And not too long after that, 
there are these ecumenical councils. And these weren't the first ones that happened in the course of church history. Um, but in the fourth century, there are several ecumenical councils that happen that end up being massively important throughout the course of church history. And so basically, uh, there was a calling of church leaders from basically pastors and church leaders from all over the world would come together in one location and they'd be there for a few days or a few weeks. They would argue about theology. They'd argue about some bit of truth. They'd discuss it. They'd dialogue. They'd debate. And eventually they would all come to a consensus as what they believe to be true. And they say, okay, all of us are going to agree that this is truth. And this is what we as Christians believe. They'd all go back to where they came from. And they would tell their people, hey, listen, here is what we as Christians believe. Here's what we ironed out at the ecumenical council. So all throughout the 4th and 5th centuries, we see a variety of these councils taking place all throughout the known world, all throughout the Roman Empire. One of the most influential councils that took place was the one that took place in 325 AD, known as the Council of Nicaea. And this is really where the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is really ironed out and documented and articulated well. Now, Christians up to this point for many centuries had believed in the idea of a Trinitarian God, but the Council of Nicaea is really where, uh, where the religious leader said, hey, let, let's define this once and for all. This is what we as Christians believe. We believe in a Trinitarian God and a God that exists in three persons. And it really uh, ironed out what it means to believe in a God that is Trinitarian, where they really made it clear. We believe that Jesus was fully God and eternal, that, that Jesus at no point was created, but he has always been in existence and that he himself is fully God. And out of the Council of Nicaea came what we know as the Nicene Creed. Many of you may be familiar with that. So obviously the Council of Nicaea had a had a very big impact on Christianity throughout the world. Uh, now the Trinity wasn't the only thing they discussed at the Council of Nicaea. There were other topics there, but no doubt that the articulation of the definition of the Trinity, the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead is a very important thing, was no doubt the most important topic that they addressed and tackled there at 325. So those are the types of councils we see. And there's a variety of councils. And some of the councils that we see in the 4th and 5th century are dealing with which books belong in the Bible and which ones don't. Now, as we dialogue about you know, which books were put in the Bible, which ones weren't, I think it's really important to remember or to, to really consider what might have been or what is likely to have been the attitude of the people living in that time frame, living in the fourth century as they're doing these ecumenical councils, living in that, in, in that time frame as they're trying to bring a, a clarity to what they believe and what books definitely belong in and which ones don't. I think there are a lot of revisionist historians that would like you to believe that uh, that there was this massive dispute, but that's not true. For the most part, most of the books that ended up in the in the Bible were, for the most part, universally accepted by the majority of Christians uh, throughout the known world. Books, books, the books in the that were circulating that time really kind of fall into four categories. One, the first category is books that we know for sure are definitely authentic, definitely authoritative, definitely belong in. And of the 66 books we have today, like 60 of the 66 belong in that category. So there's not like this, like, well, we don't really know for sure. No, no, most belong in that category. Then there were six or so that were disputed, but most people in most parts of the world would have said something like, yeah, these books probably belong in, but there is some dispute, so let's at least dialogue about it before we definitely embrace that, right? In most cases, these six books were widely, universally embraced in lots of places in the world, but maybe maybe not embraced in one region, right? Uh, and so 
and and it varied from region to region. Like this region over here may have embraced, you know, 65 of these 66, and this other region over here may have embraced 65 out of 66, but the one book that they excluded would have been different, right? So, and so in some regions it varied from then from other regions. So it wasn't like this idea where these books don't belong in. It's the case that well these six books probably belong in and they're widely accepted, but there's enough people that are not so sure, so let's at least debate about it and dialogue about it. For the most part, that's pretty much where we were in the middle part of the fourth century. And so you, you do have two other groups of books. You have a group of books that are say, okay, these are letters and epistles written by some really wise uh, quality people, some people that we would trust in a lot of ways, good wisdom, good gospel truth, but they probably don't belong in the Bible. You know, and some of these books, like uh, things written by Polycarp, or there was a book called the Didache, uh, or books like the first or second epistle of Clement. Like These are books that have great gospel truth and great wisdom, and, and they were actually accepted as scripture in certain pockets of the world. But universally speaking, the attitude toward these were that they're really good, but they don't quite belong in the Bible. They probably don't belong in the Bible, but let's at least have the debate about those books. That was at least the attitude that a lot of people had toward those books. And then there's a fourth category of books, and there are dozens and dozens of writings that fall into this category. And these are categories that basically most people knew for sure don't belong in the Bible, either because they contradicted what we knew to be true, or they were, in most cases, because they were not authenticated, right? There are books like, there's a whole segment of books written in the second century, the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas. Someone wrote this in the second century claiming to be the Gospel of Thomas or, or attaching the name Thomas to it to give it some sort of credibility. But when we really look at the evidence, there's no evidence that this book existed in the first century. It was not written by an apostle. It was not authentic. Therefore, it was discarded. And there's dozens and dozens of books out there. There's lots of... Uh, you know, secular progressives and liberals that would want to attack the Bible, that would want you to believe that people didn't know which ones to accept. And there was this fierce dis dispute, and that's not at all what it, what it was. When they were going into some of these councils, having these debates, for the most part, it was widely accepted which books belong and which ones didn't, with a handful of books going, hey, these probably belong, but let's at least Let's at least debate them. And then there's a handful of others where we go, they probably don't belong, but again, let's have the debate. That that's basically what was happening at these ecumenical councils in the 4th and 5th century. And in between these councils, you have a variety of scholars and, and pastors uh, writing and really circulating the list they thought belonged and, and the reasons why, giving the evidences why they belong. So you had different lists. If you went to one church in the eastern part of the world and uh, in, in Asia Minor or Palestine and you went to another church in northern Africa, you might get two separate lists, but a lot of books certainly would overlap. And so what you find is a lot of theologians collecting these different lists and comparing them and really trying to take all of the evidence and determine which ones really belong. Because there were some churches that would embrace a book of the Bible that they thought was authentic, but it's because they didn't have the information, right? Like the question people ask, well, why did some embrace some and not others? Well, the answer is because they didn't have the information we have. Right? They didn't have CNN and Fox News. Right? They didn't live in a 24-hour news cycle. They didn't have email. Okay? They didn't have those things. In those days, communication took days, weeks, months, in some cases, years or decades for information to scatter and circulate throughout the known world. So it's plausible that in one part of the world, they had a bit of information that would that would authenticate a particular book of the Bible, but that piece of information hadn't made it to another piece of the part of the world. Therefore, that 
place of the world was not embracing that book of the Bible because they didn't have the same information. And that's why the circulation of these writings, the circulation of these lists, the, these ecumenical councils taking place all over the place were extremely valuable in terms of getting the information that was out there. It was important for people to come together, to have the dialogues, to have the debates, to determine which was authentic, which ones were not, which ones authoritative, which ones are not, which ones had the quality gospel truth, the themes of biblical truth that we ought to embrace and which ones did not. Like th those were the conversations that were happening. And as what we see over the course of the fourth century is a variety of different lists being circulated and widely accepted in different parts of the world. You had a list by Athanasius that was that was given to us. He gave us a list of 26 books of the New Testament, or 27 books, excuse me, and it's the exact list that we actually have today. Uh, Augustine gave us some lists, and he actually presided over the Third Council of Carthage in 397 AD, which was one of the most influential councils in terms of uh, debating which books of the Bible belong. In fact, that was the primary purpose of that council. Yet religious leaders from all over the world that came together and, and kind of really debated which books belong belong, which ones don't. And they came up with uh, books they, they believe, believe belong in the New Testament, which again matches what we have today. And there were others. Uh, Pope Damascus, uh, the Bishop of Rome in 382 AD, he produces uh, a list for us. And there were others. And over the course of time, by the time we, we reach the early part of the 5th century, there becomes a consensus, a, a list in general of people saying, here are the ones that we definitely believe ought to be in the Bible. These are canon. These are the ones that we know are authentic and they are authoritative. Now, now, what was the category to determine what was authentic and what was not? In essence was this, in order to be included in the canon, something had to have been written in such a way that it was embraced by the early church. And so if there was not substantial evidence that the early Christians and the first and second generation of Christians had really viewed this particular writing as authoritative, then they would not include it. The other barometer, the measuring stick that was often used, was particularly for the New Testament, obviously, was that if it was written by an apostle or written by someone under the tutelage of an apostle. So obviously Paul was an apostle. Anything he wrote would be considered could be considered canon. And Luke, who served under him, was you know under his tutelage, uh, could also write as something that was considered authoritative. Um, Peter was an apostle, and he obviously wrote things that are in the canon. And then John Mark, who was under his tutelage for, for an extended period of time, who eventually wrote a gospel. And, and earlier in his life, John Mark was also under the tutelage of Barnabas and Paul. So again, that qualified him to write something uh, that could be included in the canon. And then, of course, John Mark's gospel was widely accepted uh, as you know as authoritative by the early church. So those are that was part of the th the thought process when people in the fourth and fifth century were coming up with the list of what belonged the Bible and what did not. Often they would say, "Was this written by an apostle or by someone who who had been under the tutelage of an apostle?" And was this writing viewed and embraced as authoritative by the early Christians in the, you know, in the first century and the early portion of the second century? Those were often uh, you know, the, the questions that was asked. And if the question, if the answer was yes, then in many cases those writings were then included in the canon. So by the time we get to the middle portions of the fifth century, you know, you know the early to, to mid 400s AD, 
we have this consensus list, this list of, of 27 books that belong in the New Testament. And this consensus list is pretty much uh, widely embraced and universally accepted all throughout the known world. Uh, but it's also really important to remember, this didn't happen overnight, right? Like it wasn't like uh, Ath you know, Athanasius comes out with his list and that gets circulated, you know, 350 to 360 AD. And then all of a sudden everyone gets it or that, or that there's a, a you know, the, the third council of Carthage, and then all of a sudden, people know exactly what's in the Bible. Like before the council, they didn't know. And then all of a sudden, after the council, boom, here's the Bible. And everyone's like scrambling to figure out what's in it and, and to learn and go, oh my gosh, we didn't know that was going to be in there. Like that's not how it happened, right? In most cases, people knew what was authentic. People already knew what was authoritative and they knew what was not, right? But by the time, you know, the, the, the list starts getting uh, circulated, uh, people already knew like can you you know if you're a christian or a pastor in the in the you know eastern part of the roman empire in you know eastern asia minor and and the, a list comes to you and someone says hey athanasius wrote this or augustine wrote this list and they're really wise scholars we should listen to them you would look at their list and go yeah, yeah, we pretty much already agree with this, actually. We, we've already known this for centuries. We've already known for several generations that this is what belongs in the Bible. We've been preaching and teaching from these letters for, for quite some time. You know, maybe you might look at the list and go, well, you know, well, we weren't 100% sure about Hebrews, but, uh, you know, but we trust the, you know, the other Christian scholars of our time, so, you know, we'll definitely go with that one. Or, or maybe, maybe you had accepted First Clement in your local community, and you would say, well, you know, we really like First Clement. Okay, we're going to embrace the fact that first clement isn't in the bible but we're still going to use it in, in a lot of cases you know for, for for teaching or for giving people wisdom in some ways and so you know this idea that people didn't know what was the bible until the third or fourth or fifth century is just simply inaccurate it's also important i know i said it a moment ago to just to remember that it didn't happen overnight you know it, it took a long period of time people would, would take these lists that were being circulated by different sources and they would really evaluate it and examine it in light of what they knew historically and over the course of time people began to embrace it. it it took time it wasn't like one day we didn't have the bible and then boom today we do it, it took quite some time for people to kind of universally all get on the same page a hundred percent but again they were already on the same page 98 percent right so the fact that it took some time to get from 98 percent you know or so to the hundred percent is is not that big a deal i think there are a lot of uh secular progressives and liberal historians that would want to attack the Bible and the credibility of the Bible. They would want to undermine the authority of the scripture by saying, you see, look how long it took. They weren't sure, you know, how do we know they got it right? They might they might have gotten it wrong. They may have, they may have inserted certain books for, for political purpose. They may have oppressed certain books for political purposes. Like those are all some of the accusations that come, you know, at the early church. But that's actually not viable it's not even credible if you understand the history like over the course of time the christians knew what belonged in the scripture and what didn't they just had it formalized it and then some christians in the 300s started to actually formalize it in a list in a kind of structured form you know formal manner to make it easy on everyone and over the course of time christians in all different parts of the world started to embrace this because they began to realize yep that makes sense Let's formalize this. Let's get let's let's all come to a hundred percent official agreement. And over the course of time, eventually, by the middle of the fifth century, they, they all came to a, a universal consensus. And, and I definitely think that this is a great value uh, to future generations of Christians. That, that those of us who have lived after those that after that generation have benefited from the work they put in to formalize the, the list of of what is and is not authoritative scripture, what does and does not belong in the canon. 
And since that time, since the, the early portions of the 5th century on, there have been multiple occasions where this conversation has been revisited. Different uh, ecumenical councils and different uh, moments of debate throughout church history for the last 1,600 years or so. And in just about every case, whenever the debate is, is revisited and information is uh, you know, re-examined, even though now we live in an age of a plethora of information, what happens? We find out that the early church got it right. That, that whenever we examine all the information that we have today, we find that the letters that were embraced the 66 books of the Bible that we have today are indeed authentic. And particularly the 27 books of the New Testament are the right ones that are in there. There are not ones included that shouldn't have been, and there are not ones that, have, that were excluded that shouldn't have been, that we have the right set of books. Now, I will say there is a small caveat. Uh, there was another set of books called the Apocrypha that some of the early lists did include that we do not embrace today and that I'm going to I'm going to dive into in another episode because it's just too much information for one episode. So there are 66 books of the Bible that we embrace. Uh, there are some people today in the world like the Catholic Church that embrace another segment of books called the Apocrypha. So they have more books in their Bible than we Protestants and evangelicals would have. And I promise we will we will dialogue about that in a future episode. Again, it's just too much to 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 kind of get to at this point in this episode. But but sufficient to say that for the most part we agree uh, certainly on the 27 books of the Bible, and overall, there, there are 66 books that most certainly that most certainly belong in the Bible that we all accept. There are a handful of books that the Catholic Church embraces that, that I would not embrace as Scripture. Now, I would say that, that they're really good writings with a lot of wisdom and there's a lot of truth, but they're not necessarily inspired and inerrant, and I promise we'll do an episode devoted just to the Apocrypha and why, uh, why I take the position I take. And so again, over the course of the last 600, 1600 years, every time the question has been revisited, every time the debate has been rehad, we have come to the conclusion that the early church got it right and that the books that we embrace today as the inspired word of God are indeed the books that definitely belong there. That ought to be incredibly encouraging for all believers. Hey, thanks for listening. I know this episode has gone super long, uh, but thanks for hanging in there. I hope this has been valuable. Before I let you go, I want to give you a few resources to check out. One, I would recommend everyone to read, and then two, uh, for those of you who maybe want to do some deeper dive study. Uh, the first one is a book called How We Got the Bible by Timothy Paul Jones. He's a seminary professor in Louisville, Kentucky, and he has a great book that's super easy to read. He kind of gives you the whole history of how the Bible was compiled, kind of like I just did. Um, but he gives it to you in kind of a, a more scholarly manner, some good sources and some good information. But again, his writing style is super easy for anyone to understand. It's a really fantastic resource. I highly encourage you to check out. Again, it's called How We Got the Bible by Timothy Paul Jones. Uh, the other two books I'd recommend, if you're like me, if you're a nerd and you, you want to do some deeper dive study, uh, the two I'd recommend are, are these. Uh, the first one is a book called uh, the Baker Encyclopedia for Christian Apologetics, written by Norman Geisler. A very famous book uh, written by a very famous theologian and apolog uh, apologist. I actually quoted him earlier in this episode. Norman Geisler, again, has written just dozens and dozens of books, 80, 90 books, something crazy. He's been a longtime seminary professor, teacher, preacher, theologian, historian, apologist. And again, he wrote a book uh, really covering a whole different, uh, a whole bunch of different topics within Christian apologetics. And he has a section on the compilation of the scriptures. So I highly encourage you to check that out. Again, it's called The Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics by Norman Geisler. 
The other resource that I would encourage you to check out if you want to really do a deep dive into the compilation of the scripture uh, is by a guy named F.F. Bruce. Uh, Many of you are probably very familiar with F.F. Bruce. He wrote a book called The Canon of Scripture, where he really does a deep dive into why certain books were included and not. And he really talks about some of the historical elements of how we compile the scripture and then how that really impacts how we view theology. Um, both throughout the centuries and then today. So I highly encourage you to check that out. F.F. Bruce was a a great theologian and author uh, in the 20th century. He died, uh, I think like in 1990 he died. Uh, But before before that in his life was a a prolific theologian and author. You would be very wise to check out anything actually by F.F. Bruce. And if you want to do a study, again, it's The Canon of Scripture again, written by F.F. Bruce. Check out one of those three books. Uh, Those will be very, very helpful to you as you do some deeper dive study on the topic of the the canon and the compilation of the scriptures. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, Thanks for hanging in there. I know this has gone super long, but I hope this has been valuable. I wanted to give you as much quality information as I could in the most simplest way possible. I hope this has been insightful, and I also hope this has been encouraging. I hope the information in this episode is able to boost your confidence in the scriptures. If you have a question about this episode, anything I said or you need clarity on anything, please feel free to shoot me an email. Or if you have a topic or a question you'd like me to address on the podcast, whether it's related to this episode or not, you can also shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you. The best address is heyortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. In addition, if you know someone that you think would be a fantastic interview guest, I'd also love to hear from you. Feel free to shoot me an email to that same address. If you would like to connect with me personally, the best place to do that is on Twitter. I love tweeting. I love to connect with you there. Find me there. My Twitter handle is at Kenneth Ortiz. It's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-O-R-T-I-Z. Also, if you're in student ministry, check out my other podcast, the Student Ministry Podcast. You can find it at studentministrypodcast.com. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us.